We all know sleep is important, but consider someone you know who is in the military or a veteran. Imagine how much a good night's sleep means to them. As a Sleep Number bed owner, it makes me proud to let everyone know that during this month, Sleep Number is honoring our nation's heroes with savings reserved just for them. The Sleep Number bed, of course, lets you choose your ideal comfort and support on each side. It's the perfect bed for couples. My Sleep Number setting is 90. My Sleep IQ score last night was 82. Sleep Number beds cost about the same as a traditional mattress, last twice as long, and 91% of the owners recommend. Come in for exclusive savings just for military and veterans, and right now it's the semi-annual sale where you'll find clearance savings of $600 on a Sleep Number P6 mattress with Sleep IQ technology. You'll only find Sleep Number at any of the 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find one nearest you. Call 1-800-390-9100. Be sure to tell them George Norrie sent you. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Don Lincoln, senior scientist at Fermilab in Illinois, the U.S. premier particle physics laboratory. He splits his research time between the Fermilab Tevatron and the Large Hadron Collider based in CERN in Europe there between the French-Swiss border. Don is also an adjunct professor at the University of Notre Dame. Don, welcome. Lots to talk with you about today. I'm excited about it, but thanks for coming and joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. How often do you go to CERN? Oh, a couple times a year. It depends. I mean, the thing is with uh, research nowadays, you can do so much using the internet that uh, it's uh, actually pretty easy to stay in the States and stay connected. Are they getting some good uh, data out of CERN? Oh, gobs of good data. I mean, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> astonishing. Uh, the, uh, the equipment over there is absolutely world-class. The data we take is amazing, and it's allowing us to un, uh, um, unlock the secrets of the universe. It's just truly extraordinary. Don's books, of course, include Alien Universe, The Large Hadron Collider, and, of course, the work that you've been doing in this arena is pretty remarkable, Don, considering you're a physicist. Um, the, the work in the physics or in the work in the aliens? The aliens. Oh, that was a, sort of an, an interest of mine. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I was always interested in that sort of stuff. I grew uh, up not too far from where the Betty and Barney Hill story uh-huh, up there. unfolded. And uh, anyone growing up in the northeast part of the U.S., um, has some sort of story about something they've seen in the sky. And did it affect you enough where you went in, when you went into your adult career as a scientist? Did you carry some of that with you? Oh, well, of course. Curiosity is, is key in science. Um, and, you know, I was all interested in, in a lot of science fiction. I read a tremendous amount as a child, and that really did kindle my interest in science as a professional level. The late New York Times science writer Walter Sullivan wrote a book called We Are Not Alone, and I remember my mother bringing me that book home, Dawn, when I was a young person, and I read it, and I was fascinated by the subject matter, of course. Where do we stand right now with most scientists in terms of the possibility of alien life out there? Well, you know, it's, it's, until you have final information, it's hard to know. But here's what I can tell you. What we do know is that there are billions of planets out there around many stars. We know enough to know that there are planets um, orbiting stars in such a way that the temperature is very similar to what we have here on Earth. Given the amount of, of planets out there and the fact that 
we exist here on Earth, it seems kind of unconscionable that there wouldn't be additional alien life out there somewhere. Why does why does most stories of aliens always seem to revolve around little little alien men, little greys, for example? Oh my gosh, that's a long story. Um, <laughs> well, you're here for two hours. We got time. <laughs> well, um, it wasn't always that way. Um, originally, I mean, when when we go back and and see how this has unfolded, there's actually two stories. One is the stories that you will hear from people who are real serious UFO aficionados who will talk about stories that have been um, recorded back in medieval times or earlier. But that's not how most people get their um, their image of, of aliens. Their image comes, of course, from the media. And the media um, gets its ideas from uh, reports that people make and then the two feed one another. And so... I think while there are certainly um, stories from from uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and uh, early writings in the uh, turn of the 20th century, I think the wh- where the Greys came from that story actually started in June of 1947. Now, in June of 1947, no aliens were seen. What was seen was um, UF or what seemed to be flying saucers uh, near Mount Rainier in Washington D.C. Now, and we can go over that story. It's actually a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was 1947 is when that started. Then there was uh, the Roswell incident, which uh, is actually not like most people think it, they, the, the, how it actually unfolded in, in the newspapers and history. And then fast forward until um, the 1961 when the Betty and Barney Hill um, abduction story began, and it was probably 1961 where the Greys started to to come into public uh, knowledge. Because if I remember, that's what they described these extraterrestrials to be like. Right. Um, under uh, hypnosis. Under hypnosis, um, both Betty and Barney Hill reported being abducted, being probed, and, and you know the the sort of classic story that we now know of. But if you actually read what they reported, it was a little different than the greys that we think of now, which of course are sort of uh, you know three and a half, four feet tall, thin build, um, egg shaped heads, almond shaped eyes, no nose. What they reported was um, that a UFO was inspecting them. It tipped forward. And when it tipped forward, the aliens were looking down from the windows. And they reported seeing um, very small gray humanoids, so that's the, what we've heard. They were dressed in, um, with hats that looked like sort of World War II um, officer hats, and they had huge noses. In fact, they recalled them as Lake Jimmy Durante. And so that part has actually... Um, you know, is different, but that's where the grays, and as far as I can tell from from studying the literature, where that entered popular culture. I uh, had an opportunity back in 1971 to interview their psychiatrist, Dr. Benjamin Simon. It was yeah. one of my first reporter jobs. I was just a kid, yeah. and I remember distinctly asking him if they were telling the truth, and he said. I don't know what they saw, but they believe what they saw under hypnosis separately. They told me similar things. I believe they're telling the truth based on what they think they saw 
And he, and he emphasized, he said, George, I don't know what they saw. I got, you know, this is just based on what they're saying, but they believe it to be true. And I found that pretty compelling, Don. Well, you know, I, everything I have ever read says that Betty and Barney Hill were intrinsically honest people. I mean, that, you can't say that about all people right. who have said that something happened with UFOs. And they weren't out to gain anything. Right. In fact, they were hiding. I mean, they weren't hiding, but they were, you know, trying to keep out of the spot. Well, they, they, were, in, they were an interracial couple at the time. And in those days, you know, people freaked out about stuff like that. A- absolutely. And um, they were just trying to uh, figure out. They had this missing time in their abduction that they didn't know what happened. And that just bothered them. And probably it was sleep hypnosis, you know, or road hypnosis would be my guess. But um, they certainly believed it. But here's a kicker. And, and this is, you know, both people reported the same thing. But um, the stories that they told um, look very, very similar to a television show story called Outer Limits that played a few days before their hypnosis. Okay. So the fact that they um, reported something that, uh, you know, like they did, together. Well, if they watched the television show together, that, that might have hmm. been the trigger. And in fact, in my book, I show a picture of the alien that was you know, put on the television screen for that show. And it's not quite the, our standard gray, but it looks a lot like it. It's kind of a combination of the gray and like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Interesting take. Well, you know, hey, anything's possible, isn't it? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I I couldn't tell you. I, I'm not a great believer in um, in intelligent life visiting the Earth, although I can't rule out that it might not have happened in the past. Um, but it seems unlikely for, for many, many reasons that, that we can talk about. But it's absolutely unfathomable to me that there's not intelligent life in the universe and, and quite possibly intelligent life somewhere. The universe is just too big. Right. Stephen Hawking seems to be warning us to be very careful trying to communicate who we are and where we are to them. Well, you know, when a technologically advanced civilization meets a technologically less advanced civilization, yep. it often doesn't go well for the less advanced civilization. No, it does not. So maybe he has uh, some pretty uh, poignant things to say about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, given that that we... It really boils down to whether we can travel quickly through space. And, you know, everything we know from science, and this is something that we, we really do try to think about how we might go faster than light, but to the best of our knowledge, it's not possible. And, uh, um, and, and that, you know, really does change the calculus. I mean, it's, it's one thing to think about the Starship Enterprise tooling around the galaxy, mm-hmm. but when you are talking about, you know, uh, years from star to star, even with the... Uh, um, Millions of years, in some cases. Well, yeah, it depends on how far. I mean, just our nearest star traveling at the speed of light is a little over four years. And, and that's just a little nearby thing. I mean, the galaxy is 100,000 light years across, so it's 100,000 years to get to one side and then 100,000 years to get back. And, you know, it's really hard to imagine commerce and things like that with that kind of time scale. So, um, you know, even relativity doesn't help you, because special relativity, people talk about how the uh, clocks slow down, and, and these are actually true, but um, it doesn't change the fact that if you leave and head to a distant star and come back, 
there's a very good chance that everybody who left will be dead when you return. What if you've learned how to bend space and time? Maybe you can go through a wormhole or create a wormhole to travel from point A to point B in seconds. You know, I mean, as much as I love that idea and, and I'm very fond of it from a from a fiction point of view, a wormhole is when two black holes connect. And black holes are real. We, we have every mm-hmm. reason to believe that that's a true thing. And they are when space and time are warped. But when you, know, when you get near a black hole, the gravity gets so strong. And not only is it strong, but um, it's strong you know, even over the, the length of your body. If you're like falling in foot first into a black hole, the gravity on your feet is stronger than the gravity on your head, and it'll rip you apart. So while it's at least theoretically possible that two black holes might be connected through the bending of space, if you actually were to get near a black hole to fall in, you'd get ripped apart and come out in pieces on the other side, which, again, makes it very hard to do commerce. That's not good. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.